Hello, SLP Happy Hour listeners. We are glad that you're here. It's a sunny day in Oregon. We're excited to be here. Thank you for listening in. We are a podcast that discusses burnout, mental health, happiness, and ways to be more content in your life and career, and more. I'm Sarah, and today on the podcast, we are going to answer the question that everyone is asking, is technology making us more stressed? Hold on, let me Google it. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) The answer is yes. Uh, Plus, we'll talk about our own relationship to technology, where we struggle, and what we're trying in hopes that it's helpful for you, too. I'm Sarah. And I'm not as tempted by social media as some SLPs, but I can really fall down a YouTube rabbit hole. In today's show, we're also going to share a lesson gone wrong, where Sarah keeps it real with a lesson that didn't quite go according to plan. And I had lots of those lessons, but I'm just sharing one today. (laughs) And I'm with you on the YouTube rabbit hole for me. It's Saturday Night Live. So I also get sucked into Instagram. So today we're going to talk about knowing where you're spending your time and how to work on it. So let's get the show started. But first, Sarah, you've got a story of SLP shaming to share, and I think it's an important one to put down here. Will you talk about it? And before we get started, I just want to note, SLP shaming is any time another SLP or professional takes on a bit of a holier-than-thou attitude and puts you down in order to make themselves feel better. It's very real in our profession, so let's talk about it. So I'm happy to share. This happened to me recently, so it's still fresh in my memory. So here's the story. So I recently got a phone call from an SLP in another district. A student that I'd seen uh, moved to another district, and she was looking at my report. I do put my work contact information on all of my evaluation reports, and I do encourage you to do the same because I would say a lot of times I will have a student transfer in from another district or another state, and I have no idea who saw them, how to contact them, or how to get more information. So that's just a tip. Um, I put mine in the footer on each page. And then another tip I wanted to give really quick is in the present levels of your IEP, Write your name, at least, and maybe your work email or phone number to make it easier on other SLPs. So most SLPs don't do this, but it's a really nice thing to do uh, for the next SLP, you know, in a different district, different state, who gets one of your learners. So that's an aside. Uh, do you do that, Sari? I do. I, I am able to just have my work phone number for my school district mm-hmm. on all my paperwork, but I definitely put that and my email address on there. That's awesome. So... Recently, I got a phone call from an SLP that had one of my former students, and she left me a voicemail that I couldn't figure out at first. So she said that on my report, I had several mentions of the Goldman Fristo 4, so version 4. And if you're listening to this in real time, you know that the current edition of the Goldman Fristo is 3, not 4. So that was clearly a typo. But she called me, and I called her back and left a voice message, and then she left me a second message. So both times she said she was so confused... Was there a Golden Infristo 4? She needed to know what exact version of what exact test I used because that mattered for eligibility, which, by the way, is fishy, and I'm not sure that I believe that that's true. Um, but she was maybe kind of playing dumb there. Right. I When you told me this story, I tried to wrap my head around it a little bit because I, I didn't understand how she could, how it could be such a big deal 
that she needed to have that exact number when it doesn't change the score. It doesn't matter, people! <laughs> but, uh, so when you told me about it, I, I, it sounded to me the situation you described like there was a little bit of shaming going on, and I, and I do think you're right. She had to have known there wasn't a Goldman Fristo 4, and I can't think of why she would have called twice except to make you feel bad about it. Right, and, like, I believe that SLPs can use Google, right? So she could have Googled that. But um, so yeah, and so I did want to talk about SLP shaming. I think I first heard the term from the speech bubble blog. Um, so it's when as SLPs, we do things to make other SLPs feel like they aren't living up to high standards, aren't doing well enough, or like maybe we're catching some of their mistakes. Uh, it's also when an SLP asks a question and another SLP makes them feel bad for not knowing the answer. So it's super not cool. Don't do it. So anyway, I truly don't know what was going on there. And the only thing that makes sense to me is that she wanted to make me feel bad for the mistake. And to be honest, early on in my career, I would have felt horrible, but it didn't work. I just, I'm impressed I get reports done at all. (laughs) And I know that some of my paperwork, I do so much paperwork and so many reports and so many IEPs that they will have mistakes in them. And I'm okay with that. I do my best. I am right there with you, and I feel like I'm something of an easy target right now because I have to admit, between pregnancy fatigue and pregnancy brain, which are probably related, I, which and I have discovered that's a real thing. I used to think that that was not a real thing. My, um, I've just found that I'm making more mistakes than usual. My SLPA very gently pointed out to me the other day, that I logged info in my session log completely wrong. I entered it into the completely wrong student's log. And uh, thank goodness she caught it because the actual student didn't have the log (laughs) for that day. And the kid I did log for wasn't even in that session. So that would have been a very foolish mistake. And and, uh, I hope I I haven't made any more. But things like that, I catch myself making more and more frequently lately. Yeah, and I think with the workloads we have, we're going to make mistakes, and we're all just doing our best. And that's my perspective on making mistakes. So this brings us to what do you do when you feel SLP shamed? So personally, I'm just going to talk from my perspective. I think it's fine to call people on it, but only you know if it's the right time and person and situation to say, hey, are you really confused about this? Or are you asking to make me feel bad about it? Um, in this case, I never actually talked to the SLP for real, so I didn't take a more direct approach. But I did leave a voicemail and I said, hey, yeah, that is a mistake. I make mistakes all the time. We all do as SLPs. I'm sure you've done the same. It was the Goldman Fisto. Fristo 3. So it was kind of a gentle-ish way to say, hey, we all make mistakes. I knew you do. Get with the program. So, Sari, do you have any experiences of SLP shaming? Or what would you do if you were SLP shamed? I think I was actually caught on the other side and accidentally shamed a coworker. And I still feel kind of bad about it. And I'll, I'll explain that situation. We were at an IEP, no, IEP meeting. And I noticed something odd in one of the students' classroom accommodations that seemed to imply that the student would be provided with a tin box of manipulatives, is what it said, a quote, tin box. What was it supposed to say, by the way? Um, it, I Well, I'll, I'll get to what I think it should have said. Okay. Uh, because when I read it, I found it hilarious for some reason that it should stipulate a tin box, and I said a really dumb joke. <laughs> I think I just asked, 
well, what if it was a cardboard or a wooden box? <laughs> and uh, everyone just kind of gave me a blank stare. They they didn't they didn't catch on that it was a joke, and then I had to explain myself, and it was just a very awkward thing, and it definitely sounded or looked like I was catching a mistake and kind of picking fun at the teacher who had made it. So I had to apologize to her later, but I, I think the accommodation should have said access to manipulatives or something like that, access to. It was like it was a math accommodation, access to manipulative kit. I don't think tin, tin box was <laughs> in there on purpose. Maybe they keep their manipulatives in a tin box, and um, that's just how they put it, but I could have gone about it in a gentler way, mm -hmm. I think. So um, in a lot of ways, I do want to say that SLP shaming reminds me a lot of bullying, Yes, it is bullying. It is bullying. It's straight up bullying. Yes. And uh, if you are like me, sometimes the strategy that I will use is uh, kind of like what we teach our kids when someone's picking on you. Well, first of all, we always teach them, like, walk away, right? <laughs> which isn't always possible for professionals no. to just walk away from you. I wish I could walk away. <laughs> um, but other, other responses that we teach them is to just, you know, if you can't walk away, you could try to ignore it and just not respond, not engage. Um, to make a joke, which I do a lot, things like, oh man, I guess I didn't get my coffee that day. Whoops, so put the right kid's name on that report. <laughs> um, agree with them on the, on the error, like, oh, good catch. That's definitely a typo. Um, and use those strategies to take that power away because it is a power struggle. And we can all use these things too. And if we are the ones on the other end, um, try to give others some grace and not nitpick everything that they're doing. Um, understand we're all human. We all make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I think for that, like you're being really nice and I don't feel like we need to make it a joke that makes us seem like we're not in a good light or like we forgot or we didn't have coffee or we, and I don't think we have to agree with them. So for me, I just, I don't believe in deflecting it to make myself look silly or like I'm not paying attention. So instead I like to take the value judgment away from the mistake. So that's just my style. It's a little different. So it's similar, but I might say, whoops, that's a big whoops. I'll fix that. Or yep, I'll change it. Or even a simple, got it, making the change now. So no excuse, no reasoning, no deflection, because a mistake is a mistake. I don't think we have to give a reason for it, which may end up sounding like an excuse and or may cast ourselves in an unforgiving light. And if it's a power struggle, which Sarah, you're right, it often is, I might call people on it and go the direct route because most people who engage in power struggles truly are honestly cowards. They do it out of fear. They don't have a good view of themselves, so they might try to make me look bad at a meeting in front of other people. So I want there to be a consequence to that. I don't want to reinforce that. So a natural consequence is I might say something back and they might feel uncomfortable and it may draw attention uh, to them in a way that they don't want that attention to be. So here's a personal example. So let's say you have an aunt who hasn't seen you in a while and says, wow, it really looks like you've gained weight. You could deflect and say, sure have, and then change the subject so that there's not a value judgment there. But I think I'd be more likely to say, wow, commenting on someone's weight is really hurtful. Was being hurtful your intention? And with my SLP example, and again, I didn't actually get her on the phone in the story before, but I could have said, hey, did you really not know there was a fourth edition or were you trying to point out my mistake? 
what what are you really trying to clarify? Because ultimately there are situations for both approaches. It completely depends on the person, if it's at work or home, how supportive your team is. Um, but, and if pointing out your mistakes in front of others is something they do often. So for example, I have in the past had a team member who would consistently point out my mistakes and draw attention to typos on the IP in front of everyone else at the IP. And again, it was a power struggle in a way for them to make me feel bad. So, and this wasn't an SLP, it was just another school team member. So finally, what I decided to do is I would send out the IEPs ahead of time. And each time they made a comment about a typo in front of everyone at the meeting, I'd say, oh, I emailed you this last week. I wish you'd let me know directly so I could have taken a look then. You must have been busy. You're right, I'll fix that. So again, it's not making me look bad and them look good. It's kind of making them look like, oh, <laughs> they didn't do something they should have done. So again, just trying to find a way for the power struggle not to work and for them to have a natural consequence is something that I do like to do if it's becoming a pattern. Mm. So again, like, Everything else, your response will totally depend on the person, the situation, how often it occurs, and what you feel comfortable with. Absolutely. So you should really ask yourself, is this a pattern? Is this a situation where humor or deflection will work? Or do I want to go with a more direct route? It completely depends on the people involved, the situation, and how you'd like to respond. So part of the reason I said uh, I kind of feel like I'm an easy target for mistakes right now uh, is related to pregnancy fatigue and brain. And uh, that brings us to our next segment where we're going to talk about what's up and what's down, things that are detracting or adding to our current happiness. And I will say that this like forgetfulness, concentration struggle I'm having right now is my what's bringing me down for this week. And I'll give an example. Um, we, My husband and I like to play cribbage. And I get told a lot, oh, that's such an old person's game, but we love it. <laughs> we play it all the time. And it's a game my dad taught me, and I've played it since I was a kid. And I know the formulas and the combinations to get points, like the back of my hand, until recently. It's like I look at my hand, and I'm struggling to do basic math. <laughs> I don't know what's going wrong. And I can also be quite competitive at this game. So it's been a real hindrance when my husband has been able to steal points for me that I've just missed because of not being able to focus or, or whatever it is. And so that's something I'm struggling with right now. What's your what's up, Sarah? What's bringing you joy these days? Yeah. And it sounds like it's like sleep. And I know you've had some back pain and pregnancy mm -hmm. brain and... You've got a lot. Okay. <laughs> so what's up for me is spring break. Since I work in two settings, I actually get two half weeks of break because they don't line up. So whether I'm traveling or staying at home, I'm not really sure But yet, but I'm so grateful for the opportunity to slow down and rest. I'm ready for it. And it's amazing what a break can do for your physical and mental health and just your all around mood. Mm, I love me a break. And we know that at work and at home, during breaks, sometimes things just go wrong, no matter how hard we try to help make them go right. So today we're also going to share a lesson gone wrong, 
a segment we do just for fun and just to honestly give the SLP world more examples of the fact that it's not all pretty lessons and things going perfectly right. And up today, Sarah has a story about when kids just aren't having it, no matter what you do. That's right. So in my clinic, I do a lot of work with ages birth to five. And honestly, with the younger ones, it's there are so many unexpected lessons, like lessons gone wrong and lesson fails. And I never know what I'm going to get. So this is a story about something I learned the hard way. And it's to not be the balloon boss. So what do I mean? Uh, balloons are so motivating and exciting for especially my preschoolers. Honestly, I used to have a balloon pump. But I found that it was like too exciting for my kids. They got so amped up that they like couldn't even participate. So now I just, you know, blow the balloon. So I blow up a balloon and I sing um, a song that goes like this. So I go one. And I do lots of pausing. I think I made this up. I don't think I learned this anywhere. But it goes one, two, three. Blow. 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 And I can sometimes get kids to anticipate or say blow. And then on my, and then we choose a body part. Head on your head. So again, we're doing like pronouns, different body parts. And then watch it go. And then the kid will usually say go. And then I let it go. It makes a funny sound. And I'm like, ha, 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 ha. So that's my little bloom routine that works for me. Um, and that's what I do. So it's a great way to teach body parts, do some social engagement, some anticipatory communication stuff, joint attention, eye gaze, body parts, requesting. Um, and I love it. So anyway, for a period of months, my kids would get so mad at me because they wanted the balloon. They'd be like, mine, mine, mine. And then they would sometimes cry and... Since I do a lot of preschool autism, I noticed that these kids just wanted to make it object play and not people play, and they were getting really frustrated. So I'd say, no, we have a rule. You sit down for the balloon song so that they can't reach and grab it. Um, but they'd say, me, 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 or scream or cry, and kids were just breaking down. So I talked to my friend, Briny, and she was like, Sarah, give them the freaking balloon. <laughs> so she didn't say, she didn't say it that way. She's really nice. I'm just adding that for emphasis. So I explained why I didn't want to. And she was like, Sarah, they're preschoolers. They can't blow up the balloon yet. <laughs> they're too young. They won't actually be able to play with it. So you are still going to be the most interesting person and you are still going to be the person they want to play with. And so I tried it, you know, I gave, give the kid a balloon and they can't blow it up. And I'm like, Bryony, you're right. And it was this light bulb moment for me. But I had been resisting that for so long because for so long, my kids would sometimes tolerate balloon play and then sometimes get upset. And I do want to say that if parents sit in on your sessions, like if you work in private practice or early childhood stuff, you do need to pre-warn the parent not to blow it up for their child because that's happened too. And I'm like, ah, that wasn't the point. Um... Or at least not to blow it up without some requesting. So parents are so used to just doing things for the kids. So that was another, a second lesson gone wrong. So anyway, I'm sharing this because it turns out that for a long time, I was the balloon boss. I was wrong and I was so wrong. And I I wasn't being as flexible as I wish that I'd been. I didn't realize there was a better solution to this problem. And I'm sharing it in case it's helpful to someone else who is hoarding a precious toy or just needs a reminder to ask another SLP friend or coworker, reach out, ask for help. By the way, Bryony is salt by the sea if you want to follow her on Instagram, and she is great with preschoolers. Love Bryony, and I love the story. 
it really makes me reflect on some of those things that I insist on with my students and that I can be kind of rigid about and think I'm doing the right way. And maybe I should try out relinquishing some of the control or being more flexible with them too. And just see if things work out better, you know? <laughs> yeah, you and me both. So I do love hearing from other SLPs about what they do because it's so easy to exactly get into a therapy rut or to just like develop a habit with a certain toy or kind of play. So, and to bring us up from my lesson gone wrong, Sarah, you're going to share a lazy lesson. And we have, a, we have a lot of fun with the title of this segment. It's about using what you have, having fun with your lessons, not spending a ton of money or buying a bunch of new stuff. It's all about keeping it simple. And what's your lesson today? So this lesson is definitely primed for a school setting. Um, but if you have those students who only say their sounds with you in the speech room, this, then this is going to be the lesson for you because these are the kids that you, they're at that carryover stage. They do great in the speech room, but then they go out in the real world and they don't care anymore <laughs> or they don't <laughs> think about it anymore. Yeah. So here's this lazy lesson. Uh, you can send out an email to the front office, the librarian, computer lab person, whoever you think. Uh, would be appropriate and do a sort of walkabout with your kiddo. And ways I've done this is to have a set of questions for the office manager, uh, educational assistant, that librarian, to ask the student. And there are conversational questions like, tell me about your favorite movie. And the student needs to monitor their sounds when they're responding. So I, I would send out the email and say, hey, you know, so-and-so and I need to practice their sounds. Can we swing by at the front desk today and, and have them practice um, talking with you and using good good S sounds? And, and usually they'll be 100% on board with it. And we can just do a little walkabout and practice with other people, practice in different settings. And it's a great way to get that carryover with your kids. I love that you're giving your students a chance to, to show off their communication skills with other adults and to feel proud and accomplished. And I do want to add that if you work in another setting like private practice um, where this isn't possible, think about just making that into speech homework. So, for example, tell three people about your favorite movie and have them initial this paper. So you can modify it a bit for a lot of different settings, and it can really build confidence in your learners. Absolutely. So speaking of self-confidence, our topic today is technology. And I actually think that technology, especially social media, can hurt my confidence at times. How about you, Sarah? Uh, yes, 100%. <laughs> okay. So let's get started um, with our discussion. And uh, we're going to talk about technology, stress, social media, what we do about it, what to do about it. So today we're going to talk about the mini robots we have in our pockets, which is our phones. And this is a super important topic because I feel like within my generation, cell phones, especially smartphones that can do lots of things besides just making a phone call, have really become a thing, have become popular. I know that for younger generations, it may be all they know. So let's talk about it. And if you're interested in this topic, I do want to mention that Cal Newport's books and podcast episodes are a good place to start if you want to learn even more. So when I'm on my phone, I spend most of my time on social media accounts and online window shopping is what I call it, which basically involves me browsing online shopping sites, sometimes putting things in my cart, but never actually or hardly ever checking out. It's just window shopping. When there's a lull in time, it's something busy to do, I guess. I just pick up my phone and do something on it 
but it's not necessarily relaxing or beneficial to me at all. When I'm at work, it's not a problem. I put my phone in my desk and turn off the sound. I don't even take it out at lunch. But when I'm at home, I don't have as good a limitations, however, and I truthfully don't always follow the recommendation to not have my phone be the last thing that I look at before going to bed. So that's another thing that I struggle with. What about you, Sarah? Yeah, I mean, social media, email, Instagram, and things, those are all things I do on my phone. And so what I've noticed for myself regarding like the phones and stress is number one, overusing my phone makes me feel really busy and it doesn't allow me to recognize where there are margins in my life, like transitions, moments between activities, quiet moments. Uh, so lessening the habit of just habitually checking my phone is helpful and allows me to find those little quiet moments during the day where maybe I can just like breathe for a minute or like chill out or think about something pleasant. Uh, the second thing is You know, I like social media. I enjoy it, especially Instagram, and that's okay. But I do need to have boundaries sometimes. And Gretchen Rubin talks about this, and she says, within boundaries, there is freedom. And I do agree with that. So some days, I don't put limits on myself, and I can trust myself to just check and move on. But some days, not so much. I think the biggest thing I'd like to change is that bedtime phone routine. I think it's hard for me to draw that line, though, and I need to... Maybe I need to like recharge it overnight in another room. So it's just not even in there in order to, to make that line. But lifestyle comes into play here a little bit too, right? And, uh, my husband always goes to bed and that's the last thing that he looks at because he showers before he goes to bed. He wants to wait till his hair is a little drier. So he's sitting up, he's on his phone waiting for his hair to not mm-hmm. be as wet before he goes to sleep. And I can't sleep until the room is complete darkness. So what do I do while he is on his phone? I pick up mine, too, and do something until I'm either too exhausted to keep my eyes open anymore, or he finally puts his phone down and there's not going to be that blue light in the room anymore. Uh, Have you tried a sleep mask? Because that's what's helped me for that same exact situation. I'm a very sensory person, and I don't like... I have tried sleep masks, and I don't like them on my face. I don't like things (laughs) touching my face. I try earplugs too if there's sound. Mm -hmm. I don't like that sleeping with earplugs in my ears. It's not comfortable. (laughs) Okay. I do put on the sleep mask, but just while my husband is on phone Mm. or in bed, and then you can take it off. But just give it another try. Just give it another try. Um, and then, yeah, having the phone charged in another room. Um, I had to buy an alarm because I was using, you know, my phone as my alarm in the morning. So then it was next to the bed. Um, yeah. So something else I've noticed is that when I'm going through a stressful time, it's more likely that I'll check my phone or email more often. That, like, habitual checking or, like, social media. So for me, I think it starts with feeling stressed and then an automatic response of, like, trying to distract myself, grabbing my phone, checking my email. So really, I, I need to acknowledge that pattern and try to interrupt it and not do that, like, go, 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 do, 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 which makes me feel more stressed. So I personally am working on reminders to slow down when I'm super stressed and realizing that technology is a tool that I sometimes use to my own detriment in the case of being stressed. And I actually shut like shut down completely when I'm stressed. I often feel like my phone gives others too much immediate access to me 
and I will just stop because I, I'm, I can't handle any, any more input or anything right now. So I'll stop responding to texts. I'll stop checking emails, etc. when I'm at that point. And it's just kind of this protective shell that I put up and hope that others won't mind or be hurt by my delayed responses. Seeing I have emails to read during anxious times just adds to my anxiety. And, and I, that's what I guess I've learned I need to do. Mm-hmm. I think that, I mean, to me, uh, that sounds like it could be a great habit. Um, when something big has happened, like major life events, I'll just airplane my phone, but I don't do it super regularly. So, I mean, Sarah, it sounds like it's probably just a great boundary. So let's talk more about technology. Does it make us, does the technology make us more stressed or are we just using technology more when we're stressed? What's going on? You know, I think it does make us, or at least it makes me more stressed. There are so many good things, right, about technology, but it definitely has to be monitored. And I like that my phone now reports to me how much screen time I've had each week. Uh, And I still wonder what is in store down the road for us with more technology developments around the corner. Yeah, I... I do feel like my phone can stress me out so I can like put it in do not disturb mode. I actually don't uh, have any way to check my voicemail right now. Uh, I got a new phone and it's not set up, so I don't know how to do that, which actually makes me happy because I don't like listening to them. Because <laughs> it's kind of like the email, right? It's something you have to get back to. Um, so does your phone cause you stress, do you think, Sari? I do think so. Okay. I, I think it does cause me stress. I miss the simpler times when I had a rotary phone <laughs> and growing up. And if you missed the call, they would leave the voice message and you would get back to them when you could. Or and it might be like the next day or yeah. like two days later yeah. versus now it's like instant access, right? And on the other side, it didn't cause the people as much stress because they mm-hmm. knew that's how it was. They knew mm-hmm. you would get back to them when you could. Whereas now I do feel like, and I catch myself doing this too, why haven't they replied to my text yet? <laughs> Did I do, have I offended them? Have I upset them in some way? And I will get that anxiety because it's totally changed just the access we have to one another in, in our lives. So speaking of the way that we respond to our phones and the way we respond to requests from people through texts or emails, it actually uh, relates to our next topic, which is about asking versus guessing culture, which I hadn't heard of until you introduced it to me, Sarah. Yeah, so this is based on an article called Askers versus Guessers. You can find it on The Atlantic. So here's the basic premise. Uh, when you have new information, you could be an asker or a guesser. Um, and my example is going to be talking about my adoption. So sometimes people will just ask me one or two questions. Sometimes it's a barrage of questions, which makes my heart pound and stresses me out. So an asker would say, huh, I'm curious about this adoption. And then they'll sometimes ask us like a million questions, like how old is our kid? What will the name be? Will we do cloth diapers? What is the kid's history and background? How often will we travel to China? When will we travel? I don't know when we're traveling. Um, so that's a good example of ask culture. So people who are askers in general feel like there's no harm in asking. The worst thing that can happen is someone will say no. So that's an asker. Right. Whereas a guesser, in guessing culture, these questions would either not be approached because the guesser feels more comfortable figuring out the answer themselves rather than risk being off-putting with their question. 
or the question may be indirectly approached. If a guesser wanted to know, for example, whether or not you were going to use cloth diapers, they might bring up something they read about cloth diapers and see if you naturally divulge your plans in conversation. Mm-hmm. So a guesser in the adoption example might not answer, might not ask me questions directly, or they might even ask other people, but they wouldn't directly ask me a question if they thought it might be too personal or too many questions. And, you know, I do appreciate that. But in this case, I want to make sure guessers have feel comfortable at least asking. Um, and of course, we are giving extreme examples. That's a bell curve. So you may be a guesser for someone at work, but an asker for a close friend. And I think about my own family's communication styles. Um, and my family is direct with one another. I think more askers. But my husband's family, I would guess, is more guessers. And that goes specifically to how they communicate within the family unit and not how they communicate in general, because I don't know that. So I don't believe that people are always either or, like either askers or guessers, but it can be helpful to think about kind of which camp we're falling into with different people and in different situations and what other people are doing too, so that we can be aware of it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I tend to be more of a guesser with people outside of my family. Um, especially in regards to like asking favors. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so stressful for me to ask favors from people outside of my family. Even things like asking a neighbor to just roll our trash can up to our garage when they roll up theirs right next door because we'll be gone or something for the trash day. I would rather just not put the trash can out <laughs> than have yeah. to ask for the favor. And I think a lot of guessers are also this way about favors and probably go to great lengths to avoid having to ask them. Mm -hmm. But if it's my family, no problem. Like, I'll just call them up and say, hey, you know, could you do this for me? And if they can't, they'll say no. Oh, and similarly, when others ask me for favors, uh, like creating a visual support for something or joining into a work project that I just don't have time for, I can actually get really worked up about having to nicely say no Um, and I think that has to do with being a guesser too. But again, Mm -hmm. if it's my family, no problem. It's very easy for me to say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't do it this time. So it's interesting. Yeah. And I've heard this phrase, it doesn't hurt to ask, but I think sometimes it does hurt to ask. What do you think? (laughs) Yes. At least, at least for me, it does. (laughs) (laughs) Physically hurts to ask. Um, yeah. So honestly, when people start asking for too much, like too many questions or even just like for too much help, I can tend to get resentful. So I do feel that there's, there can be some potential conflict between asking culture and guessing, guessing culture. Mm -hmm. So Again, I don't think there's a big answer here when it comes to answer askers and guessers, but there also isn't anything wrong, wrong with being one or the other, or, you know, sometimes being one and sometimes being other, another, depending on the situation. So really we're just sharing this as an education piece because it's helped me understand myself, others, and where there might be communication conflict. And in this article that we're talking about from the Atlantic, I believe it was unnecessarily hard on guessers. Me it too. basically, you thought that too? Okay. Yeah. It basically said askers are right and guessers are wrong. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, you're an asker. <laughs> you're definitely an asker if you're saying that. So, um, my perspective is that guessers are more socially aware, perhaps. So, of course, 
that's all in good fun. And there are situations where being a guesser could put you in a pinch. So for example, if you're not sure what to do at work, you should probably dust off your asker hat and get guidance rather than mistakenly doing a big project wrong and having to redo it. Agreed. I think guessers are more passive, speaking from experience, but definitely need to hone in those asking skills when it comes to needing help or information. Sometimes I have to tell myself out loud the saying, it's just a question, Sari. It's just a question. (laughs) The worst they can say is no. And I just remind myself that I am okay with the result of my question one way or another. And I think for askers, the thing to be aware of is to maybe monitor the requests or questions you're asking more Mm -hmm. with the understanding that these can be quite stressful for guests or personalities to respond to Yes, and give each other some grace and understanding. Yeah. And again, just the awareness of this, I feel like has helped me in some communication situations. So... And I think we did a better discussion on that than the article. But we <laughs> and <laughs> more so fair. fair. More fair. More thorough and more fair. Um, but we're both guessers, so, you know, we're not impartial. So we hoped you enjoyed this show as we talked about asking versus guessing culture and how knowing more about it can help you in some of your communication situations at work and at home and maybe even help you out in some communication conflicts. I also shared my disaster lesson that really is a series of lessons gone wrong over a long period of time involving balloons. Uh, so please take to heart my advice. When a lesson goes wrong, admit it and use your support network. We also shared an easy lesson to help you with articulation carryover by utilizing other school personnel. And we shared what's tripping us up as we spend time on our personal pocket robots, our smartphones, Mm -hmm. and a few tips for improving your own relationship with your pocket robot and what we do when we need a break from the tyranny of our pocket robots. Did you enjoy this conversation? Yes. I did too. (laughs) (laughs) Please toss a rating and review listener if you enjoyed it like Sarah and I did our way, wherever you listen to podcasts. We read every single one and give you a virtual high five whenever we read a new review. Pachoo! <laughs> that was our high five sound. We do love them. So keep them coming. We read every single one. They help other SLPs find the show and allow us to share our ideas with more people. And thank you. If you want to connect with us, you can visit our website, slphappyhour.com, or find us on Instagram as slphappyhour. We hope you enjoyed the show and that this was a little slice of an SLP happy hour for you. We've enjoyed recording it. Thank you for listening. Until next time.